Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is just coming up to four o'clock and this is my last program for 2018. Jan Bartlett. This week, a review of 2018 for the Middle East with Dr. Tim Anderson, an update on the campaign to get the Linus Corporation out of Malaysia with environmental activist Lee Tan. But the majority of the interviews today focus on peace with justice for Palestinians. I'll be speaking with Mary Blewett, not Mary Blewett, Mary Blackster, Bruce Knocklow and Professor Emeritus Reese. Stuart Reese. But first, let's hear it from Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when we commented last week, given Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo little Billy Shorten Ambition's popularity in the polls is hovering around minus, it says heaps for stabbed in the back big Supremo's tiny a bit more for the bosses and Malcolm Tun of Bull and current temporary occupant scuttle them more lash son that everyone expects little Billy will achieve his Shorten Ambition in the race to the bottom. And now, a related but different race we thought was well and truly won. Surely, we concluded, no socialist supremo could ever compete with former supremo Kim Bees Needs Courage when it comes to no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people, so-called security issues, Kim's heroics in the Tampa affair, in standing up to the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo in those dark ages, and his henchman Peter Root the workers as they revealed the horrors of illegal maritime invaders from our invasion of their countries throwing their dear little children overboard. Which turned out to be not the truth, but how were the little bald-headed bloke and root the workers to know that? We must protect our borders. We must decide who can come here. We really must. Leading our indigenous population to chorus, why didn't we think of that? 212 or so years after the first boat people invaded, but through all that, our foremost memory is the sheer courage of Kim B's knees. Well, Thursday morning, Kim's successor, Little Billy, firmly declared the socialists would not budge on this encryption legislation aimed at the latest illegal boat people and their majority religion, that it would not be passed without safeguards, without amendments. And by the end of Thursday, Little Billy and the team put up their hands to support the legislation without safeguards and without amendments, showing Little Billy is not weak on security. Although while there's not a lot on which we agree with Scuttlebem, Scuttlebem said Little Billy lacked the ticker. (laughs) And we can't disagree, we have to admit he certainly did. In fact, uh, Little Billy justified his display of courage and conviction. I'm strong on security. I want to secure my future. And we suspect there's more of that to come. 
Meanwhile, scuttle them, scuttled, brackets, temporarily, anti-security legislation aimed at treating no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people like, wait for it, like people, with the dreadful prospect that these illegal, illegal, illegal people may be turned loose on the streets of Trublawasi. Released from the island paradise prisons, we have provided for them through our innate kindness. You have to be kind to be cruel, he explained. Uh, uh, don't you mean cruel to be kind? Uh, do I? Those suffering the traumas outlined by Médecins Sans Frontières must be ever so thankful for the kind bit. And speaking of 360-degree reversals, scuttle them also scuttled legislation to ensure children could not be victimised by schools for their sexuality after saying he believed not-so-dear little children should not be victimised by schools for their sexuality. His conscience obviously getting the better of him. Okay, listen, I know there's a giant leap here assuming he's got a conscience, getting the better of him as his Christian charity church knows these children must be cured of their illness. Thus he decided all MPs must have a conscience vote, although most of the time we're used to them having a non-conscious vote. Thus we enter the new year with non-dear little children not created in the image of the dear baby Jesus, able to be victimised for their sexuality, leaving scuttled them with a clear conscience. And arising from the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Sexual Abuse Royal Commission, hasn't the redress scheme introduced mid-year for the victims of those who were born in the image of the dear baby worked a treat? Thousands of applications and already nationwide, a whole 20 victims have received some compensation for a lifetime of suffering. And the biggest perpetrator of them all, the Catholic Church, assures us it will join the scheme as soon as it irons out a few little difficulties. Uh, alike? Like how to agree without it costing us anything. Reminds me the new big supremo of that iconic Trublawasi business, his term, AMP on the customers, admits they have learnt from the evidence of that other Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission and will avoid making the same mistakes. Uh, so what have you learned? Uh, that in future we must take even, even greater steps to ensure we don't get sprung. On which, wonder why the government is so opposed to a federal anti-corruption commission. It's because on behalf of the Trublawasi community, we are concerned there is a danger it could catch the wrong people. Uh, what sort of wrong people? Uh, us! This sensible tactic of avoiding losing a vote by not having a vote reached a year-end crescendo in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country where we saw Brexit exit the House, which allows Big Supremo Theresa May not last, maybe lasting a little longer. Maybe. Everyone said the legislation would lose. Well, everyone was wrong. In this state, where for the second time in four years the people got it wrong, only one candidate ran for the big prize to be the caring business class party supremo. A real surprise. A real surprise. There was even one. Uh, 
In the If I Ruled the World Department, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world is proceeding to extradite from Canada an evil Chinese woman for the heinous crime of disobeying U.S. of orders about doing business with evil Iran, the U.S. of the world bit. The biggest disobeying my orders ever, ever. World Big Supremo Donald Trample the Poor looked very concerned. Oh, and it's not the If I Ruled the World Department. Worst wrong ever, ever. It's I Do We Do Rule the World. Uh, so the US of is a supporter of world law determined by the US of. Certainly, the World State Department concurred. We prosecute those evil countries like evil China and evil Iran who don't respect the law of the sea, for instance. We send evil war criminals like black warlords to the world court. Uh, but, but, but the U.S. Of refuses to join either of those bodies. You make it illegal to charge U.S. of the world citizens with breaking those laws. That is because we are opposed to frivolous charges, false charges laid by the bad guys against those protecting the world from evil. The world order would collapse if the good guys could be prosecuted, prosecuted for being the good guys. And you have withdrawn from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, but at the follow-up in Poland, you vetoed a motion to accept the impact of climate change and the need for urgent international action. It is our responsibility as the U.S. of the world to prevent this disaster, this disaster to the world economy, to the good guys who generate wealth and jobs by surrendering to the warmists who perpetrate this scare campaign, unproven warmest myth. See, this international panel on climate change report claimed that the, all the signatories must increase their targets if the planet is to survive, based on nothing stronger than scientific evidence prompting True Blue Aussie's fossil minister Melissa will pay the price to declare there is no way True Blue Aussie will increase its target. Smart move, given the government assures us we will reach the inadequate target without doing anything, or conversely, doing everything we're now doing, which is working so well we now lead the world in increasing our emissions, but the government must know this will ensure we reach our target. Based on real evidence like non-science, or conversely again, scientific sequestration. In other words, heads in the sand. And speaking of heads, we've mentioned how the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Kerry Odawire, workers so evil, has headed to court to support a poor caring employer attempting to overturn a ridiculous decision that workers who work full-time should be considered, this is ludicrous, considered full-time workers and therefore entitled to entitlements like sick leave, holidays, superannuation, that sort of thing, when the caring employer knows they are casual. Okay, casual full-time, but casual. And therefore receiving those entitlements, as Kerry points out, is double-dipping because the fabulous wages they receive allow for the loss of those entitlements. This is potentially crippling for many small businesses, Kerry's own words, listener, and this will prevent these small businesses, the very lifeblood of our economy, from being able to employ all those casual workers full-time, workers whom they so care about.
as our old mate, the Troubler was the Industry Profits Council Supremo, Innes Welloff complained, this was blatant unfairness causing a great deal of concern amongst employers of all sizes. Uh, concern in us. Absolutely. It means we may have to pay workers. Good God, this is serious. But sensibly, Kerry has a plan to stop all this double-dipping in case the court again makes a mistake. Legislate to stop full-time workers being declared full-time workers. And we can be sure she won't be delaying the vote on that one. And proving once again how lucky we are to have the protection of the separation of powers, an independent judiciary and an independent legislature. And finally, let's ignore the usual evil union complaints the, that very, very, very few casual full-time workers or casual workers of any sort get the loadings in the first place. As if a caring employer, oh come on, typical evil union class warfare. Well, that's it for this nonsense for the year. I'm out of here till February as we celebrate the birth of the dear baby Jesus. Have a wonderful break, listener. Good afternoon. And the same to Mr Kevin Healy, but I've been told he will be back tomorrow morning for, I think it's one more program of City Limits, so he's not gone yet. That's Mr Kevin Healy. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Many people have visited Palestine in recent years to experience the culture, the hospitality, amidst the oppression and often brutal occupation by Israel. One such person is Mary Baxter. Mary, can I ask you first about your background, which might have led you to dedicate a significant part of your life to supporting Palestine? I was a, a lecturer at RMIT, then a senior lecturer in applied mathematical statistics. I was going overseas in 1975 on long service leave, might have been 78, and I wanted a reason to be able to get a tax deduction, so I looked for a conference, and because my specialty was design and analysis of surveys, sample surveys, there happened to be in Jerusalem a congress, an international congress, on ecology with a section on ecological statistics. So I arranged to go to that. My husband was an Anglican priest, and I knew he would like to go to Jerusalem. He'd been there before. So I was ahead of him there, and he joined me. And at that time, we went to church at St. Paul's Church, which was just across the main road, which were was the 1967 dividing line between Jordan and Israel. That church had three services every Sunday morning, two in Arabic and one in English, and there was people living around who came to the church, Christians, and it seemed very lively. Now then again, in 1987, when my husband was rector of St. George's Church in Malvern, 
he had the opportunity, and I could go with him, but I was paying fourth there, but he was being subsidised by Melbourne Jewry to go to Israel, they would have called it. We did actually get to Hebron. It was a tour led by John Levy, who was a, a rabbi, a very nice man. But we went back to St Paul's Church, and it was boarded up, and it was surrounded by people who I call black hats with strings. They have long ringlets and strings hanging from their white shirts. And there were none of the Palestinian Christians were there. They'd all been moved out. As well as that, it was the first intifada, and so there were some strikes. No, no fighting, just strikes in Jerusalem and in the East Jerusalem, in the um, old city, they were, a lot of the places were shut. And as we drove around in a taxi, the taxi driver was just like us, chatting just as we would in English. Alan probably sitting in the front and I might have been in the back, just as we do in Australia. And then soldiers would stop us, these kids, 18 to 20, They were very heavily armed with very powerful rifles. And suddenly he was almost cringing. He sounded just like that sort of effety stuff you had in the the film Lawrence of Arabia, of the Arabs bowing to the white man sort of thing. It obviously was not real, but it was done for the soldiers. But he was quite different with us. And that's had me really worried. And then came the second intifada with a lot of fighting. My husband died in 1991, and I worked till 1996 or seven. I studied a bit of psychology, but then was this second intifada, and we were hearing about the fighting. There was also a message. I was watching keenly from the Internet. I was getting articles from New York Times, from Washington Post, from the Guardian, an an Israeli newspaper as well, a a moderate paper. I took those copies of those articles and put them in the back of the church for people to read. And I was in contact with someone, and I can't remember how, because somebody sent me an email about PK something or other. They wanted 10,000 internationals in Jerusalem on a particular day in September 2004. It didn't get off the ground really, but I had that connection and I decided I would go in any case because I had decided then that if they were having 10,000, even someone of over 70, that would be something for, for me to do. It wasn't as though I had to be young to be part of 10,000. 73 in 2004. So I looked for a brief, seeing that we weren't meeting up as I expected. Anglicord, as it was then, it's now Anglican Aid Abroad, asked me to go to Nablus, to the hospital there, and um, report back to them. So that gave me a brief, and off I went in, in about September in 2004. I stayed at St George's Hostel when I was in Jerusalem, But I had a week in Nablus, set up by the parish priest there, and met a few people, a number of them spoke English, quite a number of Christians in Nablus, in in the north of the West Bank. I visited the hospital, and there were nice 
Greek Orthodox people who were sort of neighbours who were very good to me. They took me into a refugee camp where I was shown a film of armoured cars going through the narrow streets and shooting into the houses and pictures of dead children who'd been shot while still within their house. Even on that trip, I was seeing record of what was going on a bit. But what did you actually see yourself, apart from the records? I saw so many destroyed buildings. The soap factory had been destroyed. Things like that, which were shocking. The soap factory was an old oil drum sort of thing, and a a copper, and and things like this. Very hands-on, no complicated machinery that could be used for anything else. They'd set up again in, in part of the Greek Orthodox Church buildings. I actually saw that. I also saw the kindergarten that was next door to where I was staying, which was a Christian kindergarten, but there were children who were Muslim and children who were Christian there. There was nothing to make them seem any different or anything to be afraid of. And one of the teachers was even called Mona, which was my mother's name. You know, you see this destruction, you see these guns, then you see people who are like yourself. They may be old-fashioned. Nablus not so old-fashioned, but when I got to Hebron, they were more old-fashioned. More like would have been when I was a girl than how I am now. But not extremely religious in any way. And... The daughters smartly dressed and little girls in trousers usually. You couldn't see why these people should be treated as though they were different or separate or somehow frightening. Were you invited into people's houses? Yes, definitely. Always when I've been in the West, in Hebron as well, I've been in people's houses. Because from there I went on and after I'd finished with the church stuff I wanted to keep them separate I rang the contact who was an Israeli woman married to a Palestinian man who could come into Jerusalem. Her husband couldn't, but she could. She came into St. George's and met me, and I went for some training for a long weekend with, um, I think it was called International Solidarity. They taught you a bit about the customs, things like if If you think the young man's, particularly for the young women, if you think the young man's too close, he definitely is. In this culture, they would be further away than at home sort of thing. Things like how to avoid getting into a fight. They were building resistance, but it was resistance without weapons or any hitting or anything of that sort. To get there, we had to go through Jala into Bethlehem. We had to walk over mounds that was about as high as me. We had to climb over these things. One of the men with us, a Palestinian, had a stroke and really was walking with sticks. But there was no easy way for him. If he was to go in, that's what he had to do. When they put up roadblocks like that, there was no help, except once when I did from the top of a block, say to a young soldier, give me a hand, help me down. And he did. You could see these people were being hounded 
by roadblocks and and having to go through gates and things just to be checked all the time, wherever they went. Did people talk to you about the fact that the soldiers are also uprooting their trees, their olive trees, their lemon trees? Did you experience that? Yes, I did. This is still in 2004. I went to two places with ISM, an international solidarity movement. We were in Budras. We went right down and could actually touch the the machines, um, bulldozers they were, that were knocking down olive trees. They were definitely well inside the green line. We um, had trouble. The soldiers would suddenly, they'd let you get close, but then there would be an order. And suddenly these fit young men were chasing and you you couldn't really get quite get out of the way. And it was really quite frightening trying to have to run uphill to get away. And on that occasion, they got round in front of us and blocked us. There was, was one um, Palestinian young man that they were after, I think, because they stopped us and they said something in Arabic. And he replied in Arabic. And so they went for him. So we all piled on top. And I was right on top because I couldn't take the weight of all that ten people to protect him. They were very kind to me. They were very gentle with me. They just lifted me off, moved me away. Didn't give me a hard time at all. But they bashed the young men, both Palestinians and internationals, with um, truncheons, they dragged him off. As well as that, they took a German girl who, I must say, was swearing and yelling at them and following them, so they took her too. And they took, I think, ten Israeli activists as well. And those Israeli activists stayed outside the police station until everyone was released, because they were released first. I also went to... Beit Hour, which is between Hebron and Beersheba, being in Israel and Hebron, this is in the south. There they used guns, bullets, rubber bullets, real bullets, tear gas, and it was after that I decided that I really couldn't go to demonstrations because someone had to stay with me. It was quite strong tear gas and I was gassed and just couldn't get away. I had to just stop. And so someone had to stay with me, and I thought, that isn't fair. And they guessed the medical centre. There were the people who were in hospital, went into Hebron. They were not allowed to use the proper roads. They had to use dirt tracks. It was pretty rough riding and took quite a long, what would have taken 15 minutes on on the proper road, took, I don't know, three quarters of an hour on a very rough, bumpy road. There was this Danish girl who was shot in the back as well as Palestinians. How long were you there for this first time? That time I was only there for about a month. I did end up in Hebron for a while then, but scared in Hebron where we were because of the street kids. I'd never been where there were street kids. I'm a Malvern girl, and I'd never been there. The, The woman I was with, we were still together, she was from Liverpool and understood the street kids much better than I did. I was a bit ashamed of myself for for not staying longer. So I went back the following year, 2005, spent some time at the caves, 
where we took the sheep out. They were surrounded by settlements that were south of Hebron, in the, in the South Hebron Hills. We would go out with the shepherd at half past five in the morning, and it was fantastic. The young ones who came, young internationals, they just slept in, but I thought it was marvellous. It was like the old times in the Bible, the way it was happening. They they knew every sheep and every goat. They, they had, had, might have had 15 of each, perhaps 30 animals per shepherd. Generally lived in caves, but did have a building. But they were likely to be attacked if there weren't internationals around. Did that happen at all while you were there? They hovered, but they didn't at- actually attack. They came close and abused, but they didn't actually attack anyone while I was there, no. It, it did really seem to make a difference that we were there. I'm speaking with activist Mary Baxter, talking about her times in Palestine over a number of years. Why were they so targeting these people with their animals? They wanted the land. They wanted the Palestinians gone. That's what the settlers are on about. Certainly not all Israelis are like that, but most of the settlers, not all of the settlers, because there are some settlers who actually have done good things, and, and when people have been cut off from their land, they have actually harvested it for them and given them the, the money or whatever it is. But that's very few. Mostly the settlers get rid of anyone who's sympathetic, any Israeli who's sympathetic to the Palestinians and are hostile. How close to those settlement homes did you get to have a look at just how those settlers are living compared Um, to how the Palestinians are living? Well, when I went back in, after that, in Hebron, in Tel Ramadi, you're very close, very close to both soldiers and settlers, close enough to touch they attack the children. When I went back in 2005, in September, for three months, 2006, in February, for three months, and then again in September through to the end of January, so for four months, when I went back, I was walking Palestinian children home from school, generally. I would go out early in the morning, 7.30, because school started earlier there than here. What would happen to those children if you weren't there? Times when I was there, rocks were thrown. I've been hit with rocks. I've been knocked over. They're not nice people. I've been spat on and, you know, gone and shown the shoulder, the dribble on all over my face and clothes. And they've been kicked. They're just really nasty. Mother walks up the street with a three-year-old and then the three-year-old turns around and picks up certainly not a very big rock, but throws it at me. It starts from the cradle, almost, that they're trained to do this, and the girls spit, the boys throw stones. Or they have sticks, or sometimes they have a hose. They're living so close. In in Telramada, there's a building that a Melbourne Jew paid for. Next to that, they've got what they call caravans. My generation would call prefabs. They're fixed but movable buildings, and they're on the street. So the people in those houses are not allowed to use that street. There is a bit of a track on their own land that they can use, but 
they may be between settlers and barbed wire, depending on what the, the soldiers have done. And there are women who will come out and, and attack, and they don't seem to be arrested for it, or if they are, they're, they're back pretty quickly. But the soldiers are there to protect the settlers, aren't they? The soldiers are meant to be protecting the settlers. And quite frankly, if the soldiers weren't there, yes, the settlers probably would be attacked. After all, they've, they've been so dreadful, attacked all the time. But the soldiers are a problem for the Palestinians because of the checkpoints. They can be held up for anyone, including me, can be held up. And I have been held up for four hours for no reason. Now, with the repeated visits to the West Bank, did you make friends that you would go and see each time you went back? Definitely. I could count on being greeted as almost family when I went back. We had a flat belonging to a family. I won't give their name. The eldest son was in the flat sort of next to us, and I I knew the children a bit, particularly the little three-year-old. And then across the road was the second son, and there were lots of those families there. And there were the family who were opposite the big building built by the Melbourne man. They had um, a wire over the front of their building. I I think the UN paid for that. And that was to stop the rocks breaking the windows because they were constantly attacked. And those were the children I was most concerned about but there were others slightly older. Well, in the last year I was there, the five-year-old started school. And there would have been five, seven, nine, eleven, twelve sort of thing, kids coming down from that house. And I would be out at 7.30 in the morning so that I could um, check if all children had come down because I wouldn't want to leave until they'd all gone back up again. And the, the other family had... Two girls, one who had reached puberty, I think, because she wore a scarf, and a younger one, and a little boy who was about seven or eight. They were the ones who had to go between the caravans and the barbed wire sort of thing, or go a very rough back way through other people's backyards. Were any of the families that you knew invaded at night to try and take the children away for any reason? In those days, they were not taking the children away as they are now. I need to say something about the soldiers, because the soldiers we had were all conscripts. They were there for three years, possibly four years. If they agreed to be what they called a commander, which might be a corporal or sergeant or even an officer, they had to stay for four years. But if they did that they would get a better job afterwards because jobs were tied to having been in the army and the people who refused to go in the army, the Israelis, had a tough time getting any work at all. And the ones I knew who came to help us lived in squats in Tel Aviv. They had no money to pay for accommodation. They were interesting because they had rings everywhere and dreadlocks and death <laughs> But they, when you got to know them, didn't bother about the appearance, which to someone my age and more than art and all that was a bit shocking on first sight. They were really very nice kids and I did enjoy them. When was your last visit to Palestine? 
at the end of 2006, I had some trouble with them because they told me to go away and I didn't. They arrested me in the end, but I kept staying and saying, you've got to let the children go home. This was an army jeep with a captain in it. They didn't. They let me go again. Why did they arrest you? Because I was probably standing in the way of the jeep which wanted to move off, and I wouldn't just let them go because I I really had dealt pretty well with I mean, a lot of those soldiers were decent young men. Some of them were really nasty. Depended on the sort of bunch you had. The bunch we had at that time were really nice young kids, but the officers were not so good. The young kids actually sort of took a photograph of me with one of the soldiers armed around me after this incident. So that may have riled them a bit, but what I think really riled Israel was that BBC rang me for an interview and I was on BBC World News Radio. So when I tried to get back in mid-2007, they wouldn't let me in. I ended up in hospital with pancreatitis, quite ill. Uh, They'd had me in airport detention. I'd refused to leave, and we went to the court. They said I'd overstayed my visa, which was true, but it was their fault because they had strikes, and when I'd gone to extended. I had extended a visa before. I knew it was likely to they would have done it. I got back in again in 2013. I switched my driving license, my credit card and my passport to my maiden name. It wasn't a change of name because it always was my legal name. I was able to go through Jordan because a granddaughter came with me. We went in through Jordan had a few days in Jordan and then went overland. I'd been that way before. I knew how it worked. You get through. It's very slow. There's a bus across the border. The, the Jordanese expect you to get an extra taxi for the last little bit. And then you've got to get the bus across the border. And you, I think we waited an hour for the bus sort of thing. Your luggage goes in one door and you go in another door and... You really had to hunt for your luggage. It wasn't in any sort of order. My granddaughter went up to the window and I was sort of hovering back a bit, waiting to go up next. And the woman said to her, who's who's that behind you? And she said, oh, that's my grandmother. She said, come on. And she got my passport, put the two together and waved us through. We actually got through. So that time when I got back to Hebron, I just spent about a month in. I spent a, a week in Jerusalem with Liz, and one of one day of which we went to. She wanted to go to Bethlehem and other places. We had a day in Hebrew. Yes, I, I was greeted like family with hugs and kisses when I got there. What changes did you see? You hadn't been back for what six, seven years. What yes. did you see? Well, I think the army was worse in that. They were no longer using the conscripts in Hebron. It was the only place where the soldiers were close to the Palestinians and they were using a regular army who were much harder on the whole. But also the children did seem to be safer. There were no concessions to the Palestinians, but the settlers were not as violent when I'd been there before. What I did mostly... The children I knew were 
many of them grown up or the eight-year-old was 14 and able to do my shopping for me and that sort of thing. There were people there who who were very pleased to see me undoubtedly and, and you know, I felt as though I was coming home. But the the army, they definitely had orders, these soldiers, to hassle me. You know, I would show my passport in the checkpoint and then outside the checkpoint I'd be asked for it, for it again. Up the top of the hill I'd be asked for it again. But some of the young soldiers did wake up to what was going on and would just wave me by without any work. And presumably they got away with that even though there were cameras everywhere. I don't know who said to hassle. Maybe the hassling didn't come from the commanders. Maybe it came from the settlers because the soldiers lived right next to the settlement. Um, all so close together where we lived. It was like having the other side of Smith Street having the settlers and in the middle of Victoria Parade having the soldiers all living like this. And when I went back, I was living up behind a bit so that we were behind the soldiers and the settlers would walk up that way and weren't attacking me or, or any people that I... I didn't see people being attacked by, by settlers. The children were old enough to... It was seven years later... So even the youngest child was about 12. There didn't seem to be any need to actually walk with children to get them home. Uh, What I did was talk to groups who came through and tell them what I'd seen and how it was, which did seem to be a useful thing to do. How have all those visits to Palestine impacted on you personally? still feel some stress that I cannot go back. I was quite traumatised for some months after I'd had to come home with the pancreatitis and hadn't waited for the court case. I'd had a week in hospital and one of my sons came over and, and he was a school teacher and I was a teacher. You don't, you don't stay away for long. It's not fair to the kids. If I'd gone back there and waited another week perhaps to go to the court, it it would have stretched things out for Nick, who couldn't find accommodation and was being put up by the first officer of the embassy and felt as though he was intruding a little bit. Because I wasn't there, they were able... We could prove the case about the the overstaying the visa. We could fight that one quite successfully. But then it turned out, which I hadn't expected, it was a military court. You were being treated as a Palestinian. Yes, except better, but you know. But the army don't want her, was what the judge said. And seeing she's not here, she'll have to appeal again. Well, appeal doesn't work because they just don't answer. The word of mouth is that you can't come in. And when I did try and go back in 2014, the year after I'd been my maiden name, I had to go through Tel Aviv because I couldn't handle my own luggage by myself through Jordan. I was 83, I think. They were nice to me, but they didn't let me in. I was glad I'd got back that one time to actually see people, talk to them again and tell them I hadn't forgotten them. What's your activism since that time? 
in the times when I've been back, I've talked whenever I could find anyone who'd let me talk. I'm not a good writer, but I can talk well enough. <laughs> and so I've done that. But I haven't done much lately, and that has bothered me a lot, which is why I decided I don't have a lot of money, but I decided that to get some of my family, including some three young ones, to the dinner. That was two granddaughters and a grandson, and one of those was the granddaughter who had come with me, and also three of my sons and two of their wives, I think. And, and I was a guest. I was an invited guest, so I was very favoured. <laughs> and many thanks to Mary Baxter for coming into 3CR the other day to record that interview with me. And the dinner Mary was referring to was the Jerusalem Peace Prize Dinner and Award Night. And um, that was on Palestine Day, the International Day for the Recognition of the People of Palestine, Support for the People of Palestine. It's now 4.43. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. BDS Australia is calling for a boycott of Eurovision being held in Israel in 2019. Tel Aviv was chosen as the host city, keeping with the tradition after Israel's Netta won the previous contest. Now SBS has threatened to sue because protesters use the SBS name and logo to promote its call to boycott. This morning I spoke with Bruce Nolock from BDS Australia. First, Bruce, this call for boycott is not just an Australian call. It involves protesters and activists worldwide. Oh, absolutely. And it it comes out of the West Bank, where the BDS National Committee was formed. And, you know, in terms of Eurovision, it's right across just about all of the countries that are engaged with Eurovision, including, of course, a small amount of boycott from within Israel, which is difficult. But it's there. You know, this is not just outside Israel. It includes Jewish Israelis who understand that it's an unacceptable situation and that things need to change. And who are the people in BDS Australia and your friends who are running this campaign here in Australia? Well, there's been BDS campaigning in Australia for, you know, more than a decade. And BDS Australia is a coalition of all of those groups and different cities and towns who are doing that work but increasingly we're attracting individuals who understand that BDS makes a lot of sense as a practical way to overcome the political failure in Australia uh, around actually taking seriously the question of Palestinian human rights and international law. And as this is um, an arts event you've got artists here in Australia who are voicing their concerns? 
Uh, increasingly. To, to be honest, it's been difficult to find people. Part of that is about the relevance or not to them of Eurovision. Part of that is just getting through that layer of managers and promoters and getting on people's radar. But we were really excited quite early on to get the support of El Fresh the Lion, the hip-hop artist from Western Sydney, who was actually one of the three SBS Eurovision judges in May this year. That's probably the single most prominent musical act so far, but also Colin Friels, the well-known and recognisable Australian actor, has also come out recently urging people to boycott Eurovision 2019. It's a difficult issue, isn't it, because so many people support SBS, but definitely not on this issue. Look, we love SBS. It's the most interesting free-to-air television station uh, in the country. You, you might even say in the world, some people might say. And lots of people love Eurovision, look forward to it every year, have great parties. But this time, the venue is going to be 50 kilometres from the Gaza fence where Israeli soldiers have permission to look through their telescopic scopes and murder Palestinian protesters who are saying, do I forever have to live in this prison? Do I ever get to go home? Or do I forever have to be a refugee? 50 kilometres in another direction from Tel Aviv is the ethnic cleansing of the Bedouin village uh, in the Khan al-Ahma area. I just struggle to see how many artists, if they knew these facts, could proceed as if it were business as usual. And so we draw the comparison, uh, which I, I think a lot of people see is more than valid, between this and the boycott against apartheid South Africa through the 1970s and 80s, which said to artists, said to sports people, said to business investors... Don't go to South Africa. Don't put your money into South Africa. Don't use your reputation and your fame to normalise apartheid in South Africa. And, and we're saying the same thing. Don't normalise apartheid Israel. Can you describe what's happened when you've spoken to maybe executives or whatever from SBS with either correspondence or dialogue and put that case to them? What do they say to you? Their response is, thank you for, your, for telling us about your concerns, and this is only by letter, obviously. They've unfortunately not agreed to meet with us. We'd like to meet with them. Meeting face-to-face -face is the best way to express seriously what our different positions are, but unfortunately they're refusing to do that. Uh, and they've said, look, Eurovision brings people together. Eurovision is not about politics. And we've always done Eurovision and we'll continue to do Eurovision and thank you very much. So, you know, they've played a straight bat, business as usual, nothing to see here type of approach. The staff, on the other hand, we were outside this is Sydney headquarters about a month ago, leafleting the staff. We got a very warm response and, and many of the staff are really concerned that the organisation they work for is going ahead with this because they know as do most of the SBS board, that, of course, there are human rights abuses, there's a complete disregard for international law. So, you know, SBS management and SBS staff might have a different point of view here. Is SBS still threatening to sue? I won't talk too much 
about this, but we'd like to meet with them and we're happy to talk about their concerns about the logo in that meeting. We, obviously, we, we don't want legal action. That's not the point of our campaign. It would be a big distraction and, and I don't think it would look too good for SBS, obviously. Be taking any sort of action on, in those terms against a, um, a community group with a legitimate political concern about what they're doing. For those who agree with what you're doing, what are you asking people to do? We'd like people to connect with our organisation, um, and that's not just around Eurovision because our work is multifaceted and will continue beyond May uh, when Eurovision occurs. So connect with us, have a look at our website, join our Facebook page, follow our Twitter handle uh, so you can stay in touch and learn about BDS. But we've also got a, an online petition to the SBS Board of Directors. It's easy to find uh, on any of our online platforms. And we, this week, will make it sort of easy for people to contact those four Eurovision contestants, Australian contestants, that have been announced so far, so that people can say directly to the artists, look, please have a look at this situation. Be well informed. Do you know what's going on? Please don't play in Israel. And to say that it's not political, everything in life's political now, surely. Well, well sure. And, um, and I mean, this, let's, let's remember this campaign is led by Palestinian people themselves who every day live with the consequences of being an occupied people, uh, whether that's in Gaza, in that permanent open-air prison camp, or in the occupied West Bank under constant harassment by Israeli soldiers in large parts of the West Bank or unable to easily get to school or hospital because of the huge number of checkpoints or as a refugee in the suburbs of Beirut or, you know, even worse, in the suburbs of Damascus or as a second-class citizen inside Israel. They're the four choices for Palestinians and people of Palestinian descent who've had to leave Palestine. And the struggle, the struggle continues and... Eurovision is a particular cultural sharp point where we hope people will actually take notice and perhaps for the first time lots of people who like Eurovision will have to consider the question of Palestinians' human rights. And how do they find you? People can Google BDS Australia to find our, our website. We're on Facebook and BDS in Australia. Easy to find and obviously there's more and more media articles which will, will point you in the right direction. We have an email, obviously, if you would like some information or some materials, you can email contact at bdsaustralia.net.au. And, of course, as it comes closer to May, this, this campaign can only get larger. The real big point that's coming up next is actually February, the, the end of the first week of February, the Friday and the Saturday, and this is when SBS up on the Gold Coast will host the more public than usual selection of the Australian contestant. So, you know, there will be protest actions, obviously, outside, perhaps inside the Gold Coast Entertainment Centre. It's not May, uh, it's actually February, where perhaps will be the most significant thing for our campaign. So that's not very far away, a couple of months. Obviously, we're going into the summer holiday period, but we'll be very busy to make sure that SBS continues to understand that for many, many Australians, Palestinians, Arab Australians, 
everybody who cares about human rights and has had a good look at this, that it's, it's just not acceptable to go ahead with business as usual. And we know that the same thing is happening in countries right across the uh, Eurovision zone. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you. Really good to talk to you. And that was Bruce Nolock from BDS Australia, and I think he's outlined the various ways that you can voice your concern to SBS if that's what you want to do. 4.54, and this is 3CR. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. An issue I've covered over this year and previous years as well is the Linus Rare Earth Processing Plant in Kwantan, Malaysia. Environmental consultant Lee Tan has been a pivotal part of the campaign against this project and I spoke with her this morning. Lee, what are the new developments? Malaysia had a review on the Linus Corporation and its operations in Malaysia. And last week, the minister has uh, released a review report and uh, made, you know, a ministerial stance on Linus to order Linus to remove its most toxic waste from Malaysia. As people may remember, Linus Corporation has a rare earth refinery plant in Malaysia. It produces huge amounts of uh, contaminated waste and one stream of the waste, known as WLP or water leach purification waste, is radioactive and is contaminated with both radionuclides, thorium, uranium, as well as a range of other toxic heavy metals and uh, chemicals. In any other country, and also in Australia, that kind of waste would have to be stored in engineer cells. Um, usually in Australia, it would return to the mine pit and um, you know, store in facility that's been prepared for low-level radioactive waste. But in Malaysia, it's just been basically left in... Um, open pit, you know, lined only with very thin HDPE plastic. And at the moment, Linus is covering, covering it up with something with, with a very thin layer of some, I don't know what it is. Uh, we don't have the description of that cover, but it's definitely way below standard. And the review committee has noted contamination of nickel, like, very high amount of nickel in the groundwater, which is not surprising because many years ago, back in 2012, we had a German engineer who is a toxic waste expert, you know, analyzing Linus blueprint. Even then, he found that the lining was too thin and it would have been broken even before any waste has been dumped on it. And in the site in Malaysia, it, it is a fairly highly populated area with uh, fishing communities living around. And they swim in the river, which Linus dumped the wastewater uh, into. And they, they also swim you know, in a coastal area and collect seafood 
like crabs and other shellfish from the mangrove swamp. So, you know, this plant has significant impact and yet it got constructed without even a detailed environmental impact assessment. And now, six years down the track, we're starting to see the effect, and yet Linus hasn't done anything and still continue to deny that this waste is harmful, um, insisting that everything it does is zero harm. That's the status, and um, the minister has now put her foot down, ordering Linus to remove the most toxic waste, as well as to dispose of the huge amount, like over 1 million tons of contaminated waste, which is not classified as radioactive, although it's still contaminated, in accordance with Malaysian law. And how has Linus reacted to this? Linus basically still deny that his waste is harmful and refused to budge, instead playing politics, you know, hoping that cabinet would reject or overrule the minister's stance. So this week is quite critical. Every Friday, Cabinet meets in Malaysia to make major decisions. We're hoping that Cabinet will uphold the minister's stance on Linus and not be influenced by Linus Corporation, although, you know, it's, it's usually quite tricky with politics in Cabinet. There are ministers from the old regime that are less, I guess, progressive, if you want to put it that way, and uh, are easily influenced by businesses. We're quite nervous about that, and we are doing a lot of campaigning and lobbying this week. What's the story about Linus taking legal action against the minister? That's very interesting. In fact, the minister has actually taken a very strong stance based on legality. The reason why the minister's taken the legal route is because Linus has basically violated his own license conditions and also broken Malaysian's regulation. Of course, that's been assisted by two of the regulators in Malaysia, the Atomic Energy Licensing Board and also the Department of Environment. Both have not actually done their duty in accordance with their mandated roles and responsibility to protect the environment and members of the public by letting liners get away with substandard waste disposal mechanism and also tolerated liners breaches and violations for the last six years. In fact, they were the problems by allowing liners to construct uh, and operate you know, even knowingly that, you know, the the contamination and the pollution will definitely happen. So it's going to be a very busy week for activists, Lee? Not uh, only just activists, some yes. of the minister <laughs> that are on site, you know, that, I mean, this is a new government and they are committed to sustainable development. And this particular minister who's in charge of liners is a very young female minister and she's been very good with strong leadership but you know she needed a lot of political backing to actually get this through and are the people of Kwantan getting a look in on this are their voice being heard as well yeah in fact the social media has been very very active 
and the people in Kwantan are also getting ready to make sure that, you know, the minister doesn't, well, it wasn't the minister's fault, basically, that cabinet doesn't overrule the minister's position. Politics is very tricky. Anything can happen in a week. As I said at the outset, this is the last program for the year, but if this goes against the minister, what do you believe the next step will be? Well, there is now a caucus set up in Parliament uh, on Linus, and, you know, there'll be a lot of... uh, Basically, we're not going to give up, of course, um, because this is a major public health issue, and it's a legacy in the making. If the minister is uh, not backed up by cabinet, I think there will be huge, you know, public outroar. You'll see that this is happening because just two days ago, Mahathir, who is now the recycled prime minister, has just turned against his own pledge to rectify the UN Anti-Racial Discrimination Act because of pressure from some of the old political party who wanted special privileges um, given to the Malay people. Not all Malay believe in it, of course, but they managed to mobilize a lot of people to go to Kuala Lumpur to protest. And because of that, the Prime Minister actually relented. So we fear that you know, he may do the same with Linus, but if that's the case, then, you know, perhaps we will have to rally the community again because this is a major public health scandal. Okay, Lee, well, I'll talk to you mid Thank next you, month. Thank you, Jen, and have a lovely Christmas and everything. You yeah. too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. And that's a very hard-working Lee Tan, working with her people to get justice for the people of... Malaysia, particularly the people of Kwantan where this reprocessing plant is situated and putting all the people at risk from radioactive waste just left not properly covered up and whatever that would happen if it was in Australia it wouldn't be allowed to happen anywhere in the most of the developed world but um We'll stick it in Malaysia and um, they haven't got a proper environmental policy, so that's okay. We'll talk to Lee Tan early next year. Looking for a gift for the lefty in your life this Christmas? 3CR has a range of publications, clothing, CDs, wine and other products available online or from the station. New items include the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary, which features a radical event in Australian history for each day of the year, as well as stories and images covering Indigenous Australian resistance, strikes, street art, convict escapes, creative direct action, blockades, protests and occupations. Also available is Fighting for Spaces, Fighting for Our Lives, a collection of essays, photographs and first-hand accounts about the squatting movements from around the world today. And On The Fly, an anthology which features dozens of stories, poems and songs originally produced by American hobos from the 1870s to the 1940s. Sale of these publications all help keep 3CR on air. For more information or to make a purchase, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Sander in St Kilda. 
Why don't you come on down, do the Google thing, check out echocenter.com and find out how you can help us help you look after the planet. And by the way, don't forget to support 3CR. The inaugural Jerusalem Peace Prize Dinner and Award Night was held on the 29th of November, the UN International Day of Solidarity for Palestinians. What follows is the speech by the winner of the Peace Prize, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees from Sydney University. Thank you, Sonia and Nasa and Anna and Jessica and all those others who are responsible for this ceremony and award uh, dinner tonight. I want to thank my friends who come from literally all over the world, from America, my wonderful family from Norway, a great friend from the International Airport at Mullumbimby, from South Australia, uh, literally from all over the place, to uh, be here tonight. I have to keep to 30 minutes, and I'll try to do that, because my beautiful wife is watching me, and she usually does that if I go on for too long. I've called this address Peace with Justice for Palestinians, or Collusion with Cruelty. That's the theme. The national poet of uh, Palestine, Mahmoud Darwish, said uh, that he wanted his poetry to be a means of creating a national consciousness for his people and that he hoped his poetry would help them to cope with the military occupation. He wrote that we travel like other people but we return to nowhere. Our travelling is the way of the clouds. We have a country of words, speak, speak, so we may know the end of this travel. My response to that request from Mahmoud Darwish is to say that there is this just this simple choice before us. You either struggle for peace with justice for the Palestinians or you collude with cruelty. You collude with the continuation of the cruelty dished out to them for, one might say, almost a hundred years, but certainly since 1948 and onwards. By the Palestinians, I mean the almost two million in the Gaza Strip, the many millions in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, and the many, many millions leaving, about five million living lives of utter wretchedness in the camps in Gaza, in Lebanon, in uh, Jordan, and in Syria. That's the group of people we are talking about. I ought to spend a short time saying how do I come to be fascinated by the notion of justice? How did I get hold of that? It's not just about uh, my alliance with Bob in 2003 over the Peace Prize. Uh, I was brought up in post-war Britain. Uh, our father was badly injured in the war, really badly injured. It took about five years of hospitalization and surgery before he returned to civilian life. He never complained and he always refused to be registered as disabled. I didn't think he was treated all that fairly in civilian life but I wasn't old enough to, to think of it only then as a struggle for justice. But another key person in our family's conversations went down the, the, the pits in South Wales at the age of 14. He became the Member of Parliament for Tredegar 
and then he became the steward and the architect of the British National Health Service, Nye Bevan, and I learned from him that universal health insurance was the building block of a civil society. That was incredibly important. A close friend of Nye Bevan's was the amazing American humanist singer, champion of justice for working class people, Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson, you may remember, was invited by the Australian trade union movement in 1960 to sing to workers at the building of the Sydney Opera House. If Paul Robeson was alive today, he would surely be just about the first artist to agree to boycott the Eurovision Song Contest planned for Tel Aviv next year. Of course, my notion of justice was, with regard to Palestine was hardened by the experience with, um, with Hanan. I first went to Israel-Palestine 30 years ago. I went to a conference addressed by Shimon Peres. He was leader of the Israeli Labour Party at that time, became foreign minister. I didn't hear a thing about the Palestinians. I learned that the Israelis were an exceptional people. The day after the conference, an academic from the Hebrew University took me on a stroll along the West Bank and pointed out some new shiny homes and said, did I know who lived there? He said, those people are new arrivals from the Bronx. They were a menace in the Bronx. There'll be an even bigger menace here. That was my introduction to the illegal Israeli settler movement. Of course, my support for Hanan and the the realization that uh, there was this powerful lobby uh, gave me a few more commitments and skills, I suppose, in, in fighting for justice. Within hours of the announcement being made, I was on the receiving end of, of abusive telephone calls and, and hate mail and told that if we gave up on her, we'd keep the quarter of a million dollars that was already in the coffers of the, of the Peace Foundation. And my reaction to that was that I don't care if we have only one cent left, we'll stand for nothing if that's what we do. Um, I, I think that's, uh, Bob's already referred to my completely unethical behaviour in recording the conversation that, <laughs> that persuaded me to give up on her and releasing it to uh, uh, Alan Ramsey. I was supported in that campaign by two prominent public figures. One was Alan Ramsey, the political journalist for the Sydney Morning Herald, and the other was the Premier of New South Wales, Bob Kyle. That's enough about where I'm coming from. I want to talk about two things in the next 15 minutes. One concerns the, what we're up against, and the other concerns the resources and resourcefulness of the Palestinian people. By peace with justice, I mean a sort of trinity of ideas. One is about a commitment to universal human rights. The other is about the philosophy and practice of nonviolence. And the third is about the struggle for the ideals of a common humanity. I'll elaborate on those themes uh, in a minute. With regard to the Palestinian people, of course, that goal means an immediate end to the siege of Gaza. Why the West has allowed this to go on, I have some idea. 
The peace with justice has to mean an end to the occupation. It means the crafting of policies to release everybody from the refugee camps. It means releasing from prison about 300 children held in Israeli prisons and most of the 6,000 adults, some of them held only in administrative detention. Okay, let's have a look at what we're up against. We could go on all night about that, but I'm, pre I'm talking to an audience who know the answer. I want to use one word only to wrap up the explanation of what we're up against. It's the word narrative. You all have stories that you carry around in your heads about people and policies and countries, and those stories enable you to understand and to, uh, it, you, it enables you to see some things and not see others. The narrative about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has been crafted for over for 100 years, since the Balfour Declaration of 1917. I'm going to go through the, the false narrative, but the one that, for the most part, until recent years, has dominated the mainstream media in most Western countries. The first part of the narrative is that the Palestinians do not exist. This was a land without a people for a people without a land. And to confirm that they didn't exist, 700,000 of them were driven from their homes, 500 villages and towns were destroyed, and most of urban Palestine erased from the face of the earth in 1948. That's the first part of the narrative. They, they don't exist. Second part of the narrative, and you'll keep hearing this, is that um, the Israelis are the victims and the Palestinians are always the aggressors. You only have to look at the last two incursions into Gaza to uh, see how false that is. Operation Cast Lead in 2009, 1,400 Gazans were killed. Most of the sewage, water and electricity plants were destroyed. White phosphorus was, was dropped into, into urban areas. 350 kids were killed. Casualty figures for the subsequent Operation 2014, Operation Protective Edge, uh, 2,200 Gazans were killed, almost 500 children. 108,000 houses destroyed, almost half a million people displaced from their homes. And yet we're told that one side are the victims and the other are the aggressors. Think of the word two sides. That's also a massive contract. Two sides presupposes some kind of seesaw, some kind of balance. I'm often told when I try to write a, an article for the Sydney Morning Herald, we need balance. So they rush off, they approve of my piece, and they rush off, often without telling me, to get an article from an Israeli point of view. There's massive injustice in that part of the world. There is no balance. Balance, in my view, is an obscene word in that part of the world. We're talking about Palestinians, admittedly Hamas with rockets, opposed by uh, the fifth largest army in the world, heavily subsidized by the United States, with a highly sophisticated army, navy, and, um, and air force. Another part of the, force of the narrative is that... Um, this is the only democracy in the Middle East. That has been a major contract bought and sold and publicised 
by the media for years. You only have to talk to... See, democracy means equal, as far as I know. Equal opportunity and rights for all the citizens. 20% of the citizens of Israel have always uh, had almost no rights. They're under military occupation. They're constantly derided and discriminated against. Uh, admittedly, they can vote for the Knesset, but, there is, but, but they would say there is no democracy. But the Israeli government in August of this year confirmed that when they passed the Jewish Nation Act. They said this is a country for Jewish citizens only. Richard Falk, the wonderful professor of jurisprudence at Princeton, said the Israeli government has just acknowledged that it is a racist apartheid state. The brilliant and brave Israeli journalist for Haaretz, Gideon Levy, said there are now two types of blood in Israel. There's Jewish blood, which is priceless, and there's non-Jewish blood, which you can throw away like water. Another part of the narrative is that the, uh, the Palestinians never want to make peace. Netanyahu never ceases to say, I offered them an olive branch and they, they, they refused it. It's his, one of his major pieces of deceit. You only have to look at the, the peace talks, the Cab David peace talks in 2000. That's one famous uh, series of negotiations which most people will remember. The mainline message from that is that um, Clinton and Ehud Barak, and, and Barak the, the Israeli leader, offered everything they could to, the, to Yasser Arafat, but he turned it down. It's completely false. The human rights, Israeli human rights organization said that the, wrote that the Israeli government only made, made offers in order to dramatize their virtues before the world's media. And Shlomo Ben Ali, who was the acting foreign minister of Israel at the time and took part in the talks at Camp David, said, if I'd been offered what the Palestinians would offer, there's no way I could possibly have taken it. You are listening to a speech by the winner of the inaugural Jerusalem Peace Prize, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees from Sydney University. The last thing I want to say about this, and there are various other aspects of, that narr- of the false narrative that we could uh, talk about, but uh, I need to be a bit briefer than usual. The thing to be said about this is that it's all wrapped up at the moment in increasing authoritarianism and derision about human rights. And I won't excuse Hamas or the Palestinian Authority from that. The West admittedly has stupidly refused to have any dialogue with Hamas, along with Richard Falk and, and Peter Slezak, who's here tonight. Uh, we, we are some of the only people who've had dialogue with the leaders of Hamas, admittedly secretly, and people don't, the mainstream press don't like to admit that we did. The Palestinian Authority loves to imitate the Israeli police and the Israeli military. They love to punish their people because the, the notion that the top-down authority, top, the top-down way of throwing your weight around is the only way to use authority is a sort of cancer of government that they love to, to imitate. President Trump has declared war on the Palestinians. He thinks that if you, if you pretend that the refugees don't exist, then, they can make the, then his son-in-law can make the deal of the century. 
So he's cut the, the 360 million, 367 million, which is, has been provided to the United Nations Refugee Works Association, which keeps in school, in secular schooling, 500,000 boys and girls, provides vaccination clinics and food for 3 million refugees. He's cut it at the same time that America has given 38 billion in arms aid, that was an Obama decision to the Israelis, at the same time that America is spending 46 billion in, in Afghanistan and another 14 billion in Iraq. Okay, that's enough, I think, about, the, about what we're up against. It's, it's an uphill struggle. Let me turn to the, to the, to the more positive, which is about the, the resources, the resilience and the resources available to the Palestinians in their struggle for peace with justice. And what better way, if we respond to Mahmoud Darwish again, than to do it through the words of Palestinian poets. I was hoping that Samar Sabawi, who's a wonderful Palestinian playwright and poet, but who's decidedly under the weather and isn't here tonight, but in response to the prediction by the UN that Gaza would be unlivable by 2020, if it's not already unlivable. Samar wrote the song of the besieged, and, and she said that life beyond livability in Gaza is inevitable, as inevitable as the rotation of the, of the world, as formidable as a fist in the face of the occupation, as undeniable as destiny, like freedom from tyranny, like justice for refugees. And an even younger woman than Samar, I wanted to say that, but she's not here. <laughs> a, a, a young woman from the West Bank called Darin Tatur wrote a poem three years ago called Resist My People, Resist Them. And she was sentenced to uh, three years of, uh, of house imprisonment, uh, house confinement, for writing that poem. Resist my people, resist them. In Jerusalem, I washed my wounds and breathed my sorrows and I held in the palm of my hand the soul of an Arab Palestine. I will not succumb to the peaceful solution. Resist my people, resist them. Three months ago, she publicized that again on Facebook and this time she was sentenced to five months in prison for writing that poem. Perhaps the icon of resilience for the Palestinian people is the young teenager Ahed Tamimi from the village of Belim, which has been invaded many times by the, by the Israeli forces and her home has been invaded many times by Israeli forces, usually in the middle of the night. On this particular occasion when her, son, when her cousin had been shot in the face by, by Israeli soldiers, she slapped and kicked in the face of cameras, you may remember, Israeli soldiers and she was sentenced to eight months imprisonment. Let's move quickly to the fence between Gaza and Israel. The March of Return has been going on for six months since March, since March of, this, of this year. One of the people taking part in the protest, and it's, it's as much a protest, a plea to end the cruel siege of Gaza as it is about the March of Return. One of the young women dressed a nurse, visible in medical clothing, Najaf al-Jarif, 
tending the wounded near, Al, near Khan Yunis, was shot in the back and killed by Israeli snipers. She's just one of the over 220 young people who've now been slaughtered. And the figures that I read today are that up to 20,000 have been maimed, many of them for life. And yet we collude with this cruelty by saying, by saying almost nothing. That resilience of the Palestinians is, is to be admired. Another feature of their quality is about hospitality. 2012, some of us, I think Peter was with me, we visited, we were in a home in, in a refugee camp in South Beirut. There were a couple of rooms. This is a, a, this is a, a camp in which the main road is about a metre and a half wide and the sewer runs down the main street. And this lovely family were living in a couple of mouldy, damp rooms. And I went back there three years later when, this, when the Syrian civil war was in full swing and the appalling refugee camp of Mahmouk in Syria was being evacuated and there were twice as many people living in those two rooms. And the mother whom we'd met in 2012 admitted, had admitted another six people to share these two rooms. They didn't know them, but she said, look, these are our brothers and sisters, what else could we do? So at a time when rich countries were building walls and fences and refusing to accept quotas, these people with nothing were offering almost everything that they, that they had. A couple of other quick comments about hospitality. Uh, because it concerns two wonderful young men from Gaza who are here tonight. First of all, Ayman Qaeda. I was having dinner with his parents in Gaza a few years ago, a couple of years ago, when the lights went out in less than half an hour. And his wonderful father said, this has been going on for ten years. What, a, what have we done to deserve this? A day later, I was on the beach in Gaza with Shamik Badra's family. Uh, having a picnic and uh, I know that one of the features of hospitality is not only to give graciously but to receive graciously but on that latter yardstick I, I failed because Shamik's uh, mother kept on saying that I didn't eat enough okay last two parts of the argument concern the, moral the, the, the morality and the legality of the Palestinian cause this is the last piece of substance in what I'm going to say the evidence seems to be historically that despite, in, in whatever struggle for justice you can think of, if morality and legality are with you, you'll win out in the end. The strongest case for the, the um, Palestinians concerns the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. It is a movement conjured up over 13 years ago by, or crafted, I should say, 13 years ago by 100 and by over 170 Palestinian NGOs. It's not about punishment, it's about non-violence. It abhors racism of every kind. It obtains its legitimacy from Article 1 of the United Nations Charter that says every people has a right to self-determination. And by that right they may freely pursue and achieve their own political status. And by that right they may freely pursue their social, political and cultural development. That is the legitimacy, the worldwide legitimacy of the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. I regard that movement as completely unexceptional. I cannot understand 
why people, powerful people in different walks of life are scared out of their wits to use the letters BDS, let alone explain what this movement for justice is about. I spent some time cutting my relatively radical teeth with Martin Luther King in the United States, and he said that boycotting an evil was not an unheroic act, it was an act of moral obligation. That, uh, that resonates uh, enormously with, uh, with me. The wonderful Richard Falk said about the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement that here is an opportunity to write the solution to the Palestine-Israel conflict in the language of moral and legal rights and not in the bloody deeds of, of warfare. The second example, and the last example, regarding the case for the moral and legal case for the Palestinians concerns, and Bob's already hinted at this, the status of the holy city of Jerusalem. It's a city that for centuries was inhabited by Arabs and Turks and Persians and, uh, and Romans and so on, a home of the three major religions. And composers and artists and poets have always thought that this was meant to be a place above average, it was something to be, it was meant to be an inspiration, the notion of Jerusalem. The English poet William Blake used it as a metaphor, and he could be speaking today, to protest about aggressive nationalism and the restric restrictions of institutionalized religion. Resolution 181, the UN in 1948 said that it should be a separate place, Jerusalem. It was not part of the, of the, of the new Israel. In February 1949, Ben Chifley, the Labour Prime Minister, in February 1949, said he would recognise Israel, but he wanted to guarantee that, that Jerusalem would stay separate and be respected as an international city. Uh, negotiators in the Oslo Peace Accord said the same thing. Let me try and bring this together, because when people are wanting to eat, when, when a speaker says he's going to announce that he's about to finish, there's a sort of sigh of relief. I want to draw things together by referring to a couple of terms that I've used in the past 20 minutes or so. One is about a common humanity, and the other term is about justice. Common humanity only means an interdependence of all peoples. It doesn't mean Operation Sovereign Borders. And you only have to go back to, say, the 16th century and a wonderful English poet, John Donne, no man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And then, every person, every man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. What a statement if, if politicians in the coming general election in Australia want a sense of vision, they could, borrow, they could borrow those lines. With reference to justice, I want to at last acknowledge the wonderful musician, that wonderful universal humanist, historian, political scientist, Edward Said, the Palestinian Edward Said. He said about, about peace with justice between the Israelis and the, and, the, and the Palestinians that you have to have a spirit of reciprocity. You have to go into these talks, you, the way you think, the way you write, with a spirit of reciprocity. And that means you have to begin by acknowledging the Nakba, the tragedy of 1948. You cannot avoid, you can't pretend 
that there was an attempt to destroy a whole people and a culture. You can't pretend that that did not occur. You can't have peace negotiations as though it's a piece of New York real estate. He also said about the, the notion of reciprocity that it was, I want to say appropriate, I don't like the word appropriate, it was timely always to recognize the persecution of Jewish people over centuries. You have to realize the real fear that Jewish people have of continued anti-Semitism. And it's, you've seen the figures about the alarming rise in the, in the United States. Let me come then to the notion of justice, which is intellectually, educationally, psychologically um, always, uh, always interested me. It's good for you if you recognize it. Not to recognize injustice and, or not to be outraged by injustice is to, is to lose touch with your own humanity. You have a, a responsibility to look around and recognize what's going on. After all, the wonderful singer-songwriter who won the Nobel Prize for Literature told us or asked us, how many times must a man look up and pretend that he just doesn't see? That was Bob Dylan. But I'm going to finish with, with reliance on somebody, and you'll notice I usually borrow, borrow a lot from other people. That's how you build an academic career in some ways. <laughs> I'm going to rely on somebody who was perhaps one of the greatest protesters for justice, but against fascism, against, uh, against totalitarianism, and indeed against the managerialism in bureaucracies. He was the German poet and playwright Bertolt Brecht. And he said, but look, the notion of justice is, is there all the time. You can't, you can't pretend that, that you can escape from it. He says it's like a staple diet. And he called it the bread of justice. Justice is the bread of the people, he said. Like bread, it must be eaten every day. It must be uh, tried every day. It must be discussed every day. I'm indebted to Bertolt Brecht. I'm indebted to all you for coming. And um, uh, let's enjoy the next part of the proceedings. And that was Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees speaking at the inaugural dinner for the Jerusalem Peace Prize. And of course, he was awarded the Peace Prize for 2018. It's 36 minutes past five o'clock. In this final part of the last program for the year, we're looking at the Middle East, a part of the world which has been in turmoil since the US announced back in 1999 what Stephen Zunes called the continuing storm, the US role in the Middle East. But today the positives as well as some negatives towards peace with justice for the people of the areas and I'm discussing this with Dr Tim Anderson First, Iraq, Tim, how stable do you believe that country is as 2018 draws to a close? Iraq is still fragile, but there is a rising political will amongst the Iraqi factions and the Iraqi government. And it is like a phoenix arising from the ashes, literally, still under tremendous pressure from the, the US, which has re-establish its military presence there, including on the borders of Iraq and Syria and Jordan, and with enormous pressure to try and divide Iraq from its neighbours. And, of course, that makes 
Iraq more vulnerable and more fragile, really. So the Iraqi body politic, which is now a government comprised four or five parties, basically, which in ordinary circumstances would share a lot of common objectives and would certainly have good relationships with their neighbours, Syria and Iran. The main defining factor is which of those factions have the political will to stand up to the US, basically. And it's a very dif difficult thing, and it's a, it's a very different ballgame to the situation in Syria or Iran, of course, which have never been colonised in the way that Iraq was by the, the US invasion of 2003. But there are still signs that Iraq is resisting the US on important issues like the control of its natural resources, like its security relations with its neighbours, and in particular through the development of the popular militia there, which were central to defeating Daesh or ISIS in Iraq. What about civil society? And we remember the total or not quite total destruction of much of, of Iraq with the invasion by the US. The invasion of the US caused tremendous destruction, but we shouldn't forget that people still live in Iraq, they still live in Syria. Often we see pictures of Mosul with tremendous destruction and Aleppo with tremendous destruction, but let's remember that hundreds of thousands of people live there. Aleppo is back to over two million people living there. Mosul may be worse than Aleppo in some respects because parts of Aleppo were never seriously damaged, whereas a great majority of Mosul was. Because of the, let's remember, the, the tool of Daesh or ISIS created by Saudi Arabia under the command from Washington, that's the reality and people understand that reality, but in Iraq the, the conversation is a little more difficult because they are now locked into the US through uh, economic and defence contracts, their military hardware has been locked into the US system. That's what really uh, led to the almost disintegration of Iraq just four years ago, that the US, for example, had sold them fighter jets and had refused to deliver them, just as ISIS was taking over Mosul. And so that's why I say the, the formation of people's militia, the Hashid al-Shabi, was absolutely critical for the survival of Iraq. So there is a process going on in Iraq, although it's very much subject to the, the pressures from the US, and the US is, a, for example, demanding that there is no commercial relationships with its neighbour, Iran, which is its biggest trading partner, you know, attempting to attack Iran, but also crippling Iraq. I mean, the US is the, the worst enemy of people's freedom and rights in, in the entire Middle East region. There are economic sanctions and economic sieges on almost every country from Palestine to uh, Afghanistan in the Middle East. Syria, seven years of, of war there. Commentators continue to call it a civil war, although there's so many international players there backing both sides. Where do you see Syria at the end of 2018? Are you optimistic now? Yes, I was optimistic several years ago, and of course the Syrians have demonstrated that they are capable of defending their country, and they have indeed defended their country from all of the, the proxy armies that have been thrown at it. And having defeated those proxy armies, the principal challenges left in Syria are, one, the concentration of terrorist groups in Idlib in the north west corner, but also the military occupation by parts of the Turkish army in Idlib and the US in large parts of eastern and southern Syria. This underlines the fact that this entire operation has always been 
a colonial-style operation that the U.S. has now parked itself on the border of Jordan, Iraq, and, and Syria at the Old Tanf area. It's parked itself in the northeast part of Syria, establishing a number of air bases there, and it's trying to control the eastern border of Syria, not just because uh, a lot of the oil is over there, but also because controlling that border prevents Iraq and Syria engaged in serious cooperation. So that's how the US is trying to sabotage the security situation and the good neighbour relations situation in, in the region. But nevertheless, Syria has reclaimed all of the major populated areas, all of the cities. There is now a just a, a delay in the process of cleaning out that north-west area in Idlib. I believe that will probably happen early in the new year, that they'll get rid of those al-Qaeda groups in, in Idlib soon. So things do look hopeful for Syria. There is, in fact, a resurgence in its economy uh, in a limited sense, but the reconstruction, of course, creates an economic boom in its own, its own right. They don't really need the investment from the US, of course, and not even... Europe, although the, the combined sanctions by Europe and the US and other countries like Australia and Canada certainly damages the Syrian economy, but Syria has been used to sanctions for many decades and it's developed quite a degree of self-reliance. You know, So there is a lot of investment and a lot of reconstruction going on in Syria. The, the Syrian currency, which devalued substantially at the beginning of the conflict but stabilised for about five years is now appreciating. The Syrian currency is getting stronger. So the Syrians are very organized people and they've been able to survive and reconstruct during this war in a way that other countries with more fragmented, more privatized economies can't. Those economies are much more vulnerable to these sort of pressures. Where do you see Iran? Are they still vulnerable to those increasing sanctions by the US and the impact that it's having on the people, which is a way to destabilise the, the country as a whole? Well, certainly the US has economic muscle and it can hurt little countries. The economic sanctions are really an aggression. They're part of the overall war process that they've subjected the entire region to. Iran is the biggest, the largest independent country in the region, and that's why there is such an obsession on the part of Israel and the U.S. to try and weaken or destroy Iran. And, of course, the, the objectives of economic sanctions, as we've seen with Cuba for 60 years and Korea, North Korea for 70 years, is to try and bring the people to their knees and make them desperate and revolt and overthrow their government. Well, it didn't happen in North Korea. It didn't happen in Cuba. They're trying it with Yemen and Palestine and Lebanon, even though Hezbollah is the most popular group in, in, in Lebanon. They're trying it with Syria. There are extreme sanctions against Syria. They've resumed sanctions on Iraq because of the role of Hashid al-Shabi in inserting some independent political will back into the body politic of Iraq. And in Iran, there are significant differences between the two major factions in Iran, but the sanctions are actually bringing them together. There's a, an adjustment process going on, and the currency is very weak and being damaged. But in terms of trade, Iran's oil sales have actually increased this year with uh, Trump's sanctions. Why? Because China and India, for example, have picked up the slack and Iran has successfully marketed to them, probably with some discounts. But Iran is also now shipping and insuring the oil to China and India and using non-US dollar sources. So that's made it very attractive to 
maintain the, the relations between Iran and India and China. So the oil sales have actually been increasing this year from Iran. So while there's an adjustment period, while the sanctions are going to damage particular things like areas where the U.S. companies are invested, like some areas of pharmaceuticals and technology and so on, which have, are going to hurt people, no doubt about that, just as they are with Syria. But Iran is a big country and it's a resilient country and most important, it has a great degree of, of independent political will. When do you believe there will be relief for the people of Yemen? That's the most difficult situation, isn't it? Because Yemen is cut off, extremely difficult to even visit or get any sort of supplies into Yemen. There are, of course, some supplies getting into Yemen, but it's extremely difficult and effectively there's an economic siege on Yemen at the same time as this terrible war is going on. And in many respects, the world has acknowledged it, but we've seen the open cynicism of the, the Trump administration and the British and the French, that those greatest arms dealers in the world that continue to prioritise their sale of weapons to the Saudi regime so that can pursue this, the worst of all wars in, in this year, the greatest humanitarian crisis in the world with people literally starving to death as we speak about it with terrible diseases like cholera coming back into, into the region. The one genuine revolution of the region that the U, and it's a US controlled war, I mean, uh, forget the crocodile tears from the US and the US Congress about this. The US is puppet master of everything that the Saudi Arabia does. Saudi Arabia has no real basis to exist if it doesn't have US sponsorship and isn't serving US interests. So that terrible war is, is the greatest tragedy in the region at the moment. And also you've got the role of Israel with the US and Saudi Arabia. That's right. And increasingly working together, although covertly, Israel and Saudi Arabia, the two cat's paws, you could say, or the two tools of imperialism in the region, and both sectarian regimes which don't have any real future were we to talk about the real aspirations of people and, and democracy. Israel is an apartheid regime which, according to international law, should be dismantled. And Saudi Arabia is uh, a country run by a family, a brutal family that has sponsored the worst terrorism in the world and financed it and purchased the arms for it and it's an open, open secret and it's an open sore. So the two greatest tools in the region that the US have are these precisely these monstrous regimes that really, of all of the re regimes, whatever you say about the other states in the, in the Middle East, uh, the two worst that are there be precisely because they still have this extremely close embedded relationship with the big power in the world. Just going east to Ukraine and Russia, the troubles on the Kursh state, do you believe this could escalate? Well, I think it was designed to escalate. In Ukraine, the president there, the chocolate billionaire, is facing an election and apparently his popularity is pretty poor largely because the economy in Ukraine is in dire straits basically the conflict in the east of Ukraine hasn't been resolved there's attempts to undermine the Russian control of Crimea and that bridge that's been built across the straits there so it seems pretty clear that those Ukraine boats that went through there without following the normal protocols were done as part of a deliberate provocation to try and create an international incident and to attract NATO and US attention. They've done that successfully in many respects. 
but you know the the crew the the, the officers of those boats had admitted that they were doing what they were doing under orders it was a, an irregular operation precisely to incite some russian military intervention it did that they arrested the boats they still have uh, the crew under arrest i believe um, they're going to be repatriated of course but it was an incident to try and provoke and escalate there and perhaps distract from the upcoming Ukrainian elections, but you can't really dis- distract from the problems that Ukraine has. It's a tragedy in a way because there are many people in Ukraine that feel like they wanted to be part of Europe and others that wanted to be part of Russia, and they can't be either now because of the coup that happened in Ukraine several years ago and the, the regime that exists there now. Uh, and it's a very ugly neo-fascist regime in many respects too, and that's been covered up by the Western media, which pretends that Russia's the villain and these sorts of things. So there are provocations going on there. I think Russia is mature and is not going to buy into it, but of course the US has been pushing the Europeans and the East Europeans to have these military provocations and exercises, making use of the Baltic states, of Poland, of Ukraine, and try and block normal, and this is the strategic objective, to try and block the normal commercial relationships between Russia and the rest of Europe. That bigger objective is being undermined now by the fact that the Germans have revolted to a certain degree, to the extent that Germans are capable of revolting from the European order in these days by asserting their right to import the much cheaper and more convenient Russian energy, Russian gas, instead of importing expensive North American gas. So there are breaches in this strategy of the US to try and draw a line down through Eastern Europe to stop normalization of relations between Russia and uh, Europe because of course if Russia and Europe have good relationships what's the point of the US presence in Europe if North and South Korea have friendly relationships what's the point of the US military presence in Northeast Asia these are the, the facts we have to face up to that the big power in the world has divided peoples and continues to divide people precisely for its own interests to try and maintain its its uh, dominating role in those regions but nevertheless it is an empire on its way out it is an empire on the way out the, the economy is in trouble of course we've never seen a, a dominant nation in such deep debt as the u.s it's had the advantage of the u.s dollar for many decades to prop up that weakening uh, role the decline in, its, in the u.s economy is why Trump is being so aggressive in his um, trade wars these days and including, of course, the, the recent provocative arrest of the, the chief financial officer of a, of a very large Chinese uh, telecommunications company. All that aggression at, in the economic sphere is really trying to maintain a, a failing dominant economy in the world, basically, and everyone knows that, of course, the Chinese economy is soaring past the US and its dynamism and, and importance really, notwithstanding that there may be some bubbles ahead for the Chinese, but the bubble to burst in the US could be a much bigger one for the US. The US itself internally, if we look at the problems in France at the moment, it's, it's hard to imagine what would be the, the situation in the US if big bubble burst as a result of um, countries moving away from the petrodollar, moving away from the, the euro dollar, the offshore dollar, dumping the dollar, causing a big depreciation and, um, and then making a crisis for the US economy, um, that could have serious internal implications for the US as, as a very big country. Finally, Tim, the University of Sydney Provost Stephen Garton has 
suspended you from your position as a senior lecturer and banned you from entering the university. Why? Largely because there's been about 18 months of secret attempts to try and censor my public comment or to try and sanction me in some sort of way for making public comments, which are almost all to do with my criticism of journalists who are repeating war propaganda about the war in Syria, about the the war in Iraq, about the war in Palestine. And uh, the most recent incident that Garten cited was they had discovered buried deep within a graphic an infographic on the how to read the Israeli assaults on Gaza and the, the casualty figures. They discovered a part of a Nazi swastika buried in part of the graphic, uh, which really had very little to do with the graphic at all, basically. But anyway, in the course of torturing the meaning out of that graphic, Stephen Gartner has taken a position that it's not really legitimate to criticise the Israeli state or to compare Israeli fascism with fascism in other countries. And that's an issue in principle which the review committee is going to have to look at um, next month in January when they review Garten's decision. Also, the other issue in principle I'll have to review is the fact that all along I've been saying to Garten, listen, I don't abuse people, I don't make gratuitous criticism, but I'll criticise people harshly if they're spreading false war propaganda. And he says, that's not the criteria I use. If you are offensive to people, we will accuse you of misconduct. So he has really used a much lower standard as a basis for censorship that things may be offensive. And of course, this has raised the, the intellectual freedom issue once again at the University of Sydney because who knows what powerful interests are going to be offended by. I think that's precisely the sort of terminology that makes people, students and staff shut up and think, oh, I have to be careful, I might offend someone. To my mind, that's never been the principle. And indeed, there are some statements of intellectual freedom and what the bounds of it are within the industrial law of the university. So there's a conflict in principle which is going to be um, resolved one way or the other by the review committee or by the unfair dismissal, what's it called up here in New South Wales, the fair work tribunal down the track a little bit. This isn't over, that's what I'm saying. Do you know of anyone else who's been banned from entering the university? No. I don't, actually. In fact, the order that Garten made, if you look at it, also pretends to, and this is extraordinary, to ban me from talking to any students or staff. Now, I don't know what right the provost thinks he has to tell adults and other adults who they can or cannot talk to, but in a way, in his own order here, absurd order, he's been attempting to restrict the freedom of other people through that. I've got three paired students, for example. I'm not going to not talk to them. They are entitled to know what's going on. Uh, I said I'm going to continue to help them, to supervise them until my matter's resolved or they have other supervision. People don't think about these sorts of things when they start making uh, extravagant statements like that. So certainly I'm going to a contest with Provost Garten and we'll see what comes out in the next couple of months. Where's your support coming from, Tim? There's a lot of support on campus, uh, but also there's, there's uh, about 50... University of Sydney academics have signed up to a statement demanding my reinstatement, which is heartening. There's also wider support in the community and internationally, a number of international statements have come in recently. Some of these are being posted on a site called resist.site, R-E-S-I-S-T dot S-I-T-E. So 
some of those uh, statements support, support it. They're very good. They're very encouraging to me. I, I feel quite buoyed up by it. And uh, also the union, with the union representing me, and let's remember it's with the union that we have rules by which we can challenge these arbitrary decisions by managers to dismiss people on poor or badly thought out grounds. Uh, the rights to appeal, those, these sorts of things, precisely come from the unions that we're all members of. Well, like all I can say is good luck with it all, Tim, and I'll speak to you in the new year and hopefully we'll have some better news. Thanks very much, Dan. Happy New Year to you too. And that, of course, is Dr Tim Anderson speaking about the Middle East but also speaking about the University of Sydney. That's it for me for 2018. I'll be back the second week in January. Lots of summer programming on 3CR starting next week. It'll be great to have a bit of a break, but it'll be also great to be back next year for some more Tuesday Home Time. Bye for now.